Again, glad you guys are here. My name is David. I'm the pastor here at, at Stonebridge. If you've got a Bible, you can turn to John chapter 6. All right, so uh, last we saw Jesus. He's in Jerusalem. It's a religious festival. We don't know which one. He heals a guy who hasn't been able to walk for 38 years. He does that on the Sabbath. That upsets the religious leaders, and then Jesus is defending himself. And, he, and in the course of defending himself, he says in so many words that he's the son of God. And, and that just kind of ends. And chapter 6 picks up with a new scene. Jesus is no longer in Jerusalem. He's now in Galilee, which is his home county, not necessarily his hometown. His hometown is Nazareth, which is in Galilee. He's in this northern region, which is familiar to him at some time after uh, the scene in Jerusalem in chapter 5. So that's where we're going to pick up. This story will probably be familiar to many of you. Sometime after this, so after that encounter with the Pharisees, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, two different names for the same lake. And a great crowd of people followed Jesus because they saw the signs he performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? Jesus asked this only to test Philip, for Jesus already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered Jesus, It would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. Jesus did the same with the fish. When they had had all, when they'd all had enough to eat, Jesus said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled twelve baskets with pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. So uh, this miracle occurs in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Only miracle that all four gospel writers record. It's important for each one of them in terms of the portrait that they're painting of Jesus. The, the mechanics are the same in all four Gospels. There's a large crowd, 5,000 men, so probably conservatively 12,000 people total. They come to Jesus. He's on a hill or on a mountain. He's teaching. John says he sat down. That's a position that you would take when you're going to teach. At some point, uh, Jesus determines to feed the people, so he splits everybody up into groups of 100 so they'd be easier to get to. He has one boy's lunch, five loaves of bread, two fish, gives thanks for that, breaks it up, gives the pieces to the disciples. The disciples then give the pieces to the crowd. The crowds eat as much as they want. Then he sends the disciples back through the crowd, and they pick up the leftovers, 12 baskets worth of leftover bread. Same in all four Gospels. There's four things, at least, that are distinctive about John, and we're going to hit those pretty quickly. One, John tells us it's Passover, or near Passover. So Passover was a Jewish festival where uh, the, the Jewish men and women would look back in their history to Exodus, 1 through about 15. They would look back to this time in history when their ancestors were enslaved in Egypt, 
And God sent Moses, so they'd be thinking about Moses, to deliver them from the Egyptians through these ten plagues. They'd be thinking about those. They crossed the Red Sea. They'd be thinking about that. Manna in the desert, 40 years of waking up in the morning and seeing food on the grass like dew. So those are some of the things that would be in the back of the mind of those people who had gathered to Jesus at this point. They would be thinking about Moses. They'd be thinking about manna. They'd be thinking about the Red Sea. They'd be thinking about plagues. They'd be thinking about deliverance and and freedom. We also see this interesting exchange between Jesus and Philip. Jesus tests Philip. He says to him, where should we buy food for all of these 12,000 people? Why, why does he pick on Philip? Philip is from Bethsaida, which is the town where, near where Jesus feeds these 5,000 people. So you can see it's up there. It's that pink star. Jesus is, that, that's where they are according to Luke. And so it makes sense that you would ask someone who's from that area, hey, where should we buy food? You, you know the places. Where should we go to buy food? And Philip's response is, we don't have enough money. It would take more than half a year's salary. And what he doesn't say, but if he wanted to, he could have continued, was even if we had enough money, there's no place to get that much food. There's no Costco in Bethsaida. There's no place to get food for 12,000 people. The villages have several hundred people. A large village would have several thousand people. No village would have extra food for 12,000 people. There's no, there, there, there is, there's no way we can feed them is what Philip is saying. We see a, another example here. We've seen this several times in John where Jesus is speaking on a spiritual level and people are just hearing him on a very literal level. Jesus is, is testing Philip. We'll come back to that concept in a little bit. And I think may, maybe to save his buddy, Andrew steps in, who's also from Bethsaida. Maybe he feels some sense of responsibility as someone that this is his hometown as well and he says well here what about this boy's lunch maybe he knew the kid who had the food because he's from Bethsaida as well I don't know some people see in that this great step of faith from Andrew offering Jesus this one boy's lunch I don't it didn't cost Andrew anything it wasn't his food and he closes by saying what is this among so many I don't think it's really a I don't think it's faith at all. I think he's just kind of throwing in his two cents, which aren't even worth that in light of the situation. So we have this testing of Philip. Jesus, in all four Gospels, Jesus sends the disciples out to collect bread. John's the only one that tells us why, so there wouldn't be any waste. And we could say, oh, Jesus is thrifty. He's wanting to, he's economical. Maybe he did just feed 12,000 people with one boy's lunch, so he's probably not too concerned about running out of food at any point in the future. But that word waste actually is the word translated lost oftentimes in John, most famously John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him, we say shall not die, shall not be lost, would be a literal understanding, may live forever. That word lost is often used of people who don't know Jesus. Oftentimes in the Bible, a number is a number. Sometimes in the Bible, a number is a symbol. And 12 is a number that's sometimes a symbol. And it's a symbol of the people of God. And one of the guys that uses 12 symbolically is John. He does that in Revelation multiple times. One of the truths that we'll see next week when Jesus begins to engage the crowd 
is he, he says this, he says it repeatedly in John, I don't lose anybody who the Father's given to me. Anybody who's mine, they're mine. No, no one can snatch them out of my hand. And so if you think of 12 as a symbolic number for the people of God, and you think of the word waste as the word lost, people who aren't connected to Jesus, then maybe you can put those things together and see it as a visual of this truth that Jesus doesn't lose any who are his. Make sure we gather all the ones that are ours. We're part of the people of God. And we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit more next week. In John, a miracle is a sign, and a sign is something that reveals the identity of Jesus. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, after Jesus feeds 5,000 people, he dismisses them, and he goes up on a mountain to pray. In John, we see the, re- the reaction of the people. We don't see this in the other Gospels. They say, well, this is a prophet. This is the prophet. So in Deuteronomy 18, Moses said, y'all need to be on the lookout. God's going to send another prophet like me. And you need to listen to him. And over time, the little P became a capital P. And they were looking for someone very specific. And some people thought the prophet was the Messiah or someone who is at least associated with the Messiah, maybe like a forerunner, a preparer of the way for the Messiah. And so at a minimum, these people are saying Jesus is connected with the Messiah. But then they go further than that and they want to make him the king. I don't know how you can make someone king who doesn't want to be a king, but... That's what their intention is, and it makes sense. If you live hand-to-mouth, and suddenly you got a guy who literally can put food on your table every night from one boy's lunch, you're probably going to try to figure out how to keep him in charge. It's, and one way you could look at it is this is the height of Jesus' popularity. This is the biggest crowd we ever see him ministering to. Again, maybe, maybe 12,000 or more people, and they want to make him... The king, but rather than embracing the popularity, he withdraws from it. And he goes up on a mountain and he dismisses everyone else. And from there, we see in verse 16 when evening came, Jesus' disciples went down to the lake where they got into a boat and they set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough. When they rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. But Jesus said to them, it's I, don't be afraid. Then the disciples were willing to take Jesus into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. So how about that? Jesus goes up on a mountain. Some point, late afternoon, he tells the disciples to go get in the boat. They go with, where they wind up, this place you'll see it up there, Capernaum. It's uh, right there, that yellow star across the lake. They probably sailed in a boat like that. They found the remains of the boat, and I think it was in the Sea of Galilee, and they kind of reconstructed, and this is a model of what they call the Jesus boat. It's about 26 feet long, 7 or 8 feet wide, I think, um, and... and the disciples would have been in something like that. The Sea of Galilee is 600 feet below sea level. It's surrounded by mountains. I'm not a meteorologist, but apparently cool air, as the mountain, the, the air at the elevation cools off, it would cause wind, pretty strong wind, over the sea. That still happens today. And the wind would be blowing from west to east, and the disciples are rowing from east to west. So they're in the, it's, they're in the teeth of this 
wind and the sea is getting stirred up. We know from Matthew and Mark, it's pretty difficult going for them. And it's hours that they're rowing. And John says they're three or four miles into their journey. And then Jesus comes walking up. So there, there are no jet skis, no personal. He's just, think, what would you think? If you were in the middle of a lake, in the middle of a night, and somebody started walking up, what would you think? And Matthew and Mark, they think he's a ghost, which is as good a guess as any. They're frightened. Of course they're frightened. And Jesus just walks up and says, don't be afraid. In the interesting word, the disciples were willing to take him on the boat. They were willing to do this. And then immediately, which sounds like another miracle to me, immediately they were where they wanted to go. They were in the middle of the lake, and then Jesus gets in the boat, and now they're on the shore. Out of all the things that Jesus does, this is the most God-like to me. He heals people. We pray for people, and they're healed. He delivers people from demons. We pray for people who are oppressed, and they're set free. He raises people from the dead, and I've read credible reports of that happening in our day and age. He multiplies resources and seen the same thing. Never seen anybody walk on water. Definitely never seen anybody walk on water for three miles. Think three miles. That's a long way. You walk 20 miles. It takes like 20 minutes to walk a mile. It's a long time. What's he doing? Is he just showing off? And, and he knew. We'll see in verse 22, there was only one boat. And Jesus knew there was only one boat, and he's told his disciples to get in it and go ahead of him. I don't think he got down to the shore and was like, I guess I'll walk. I, I, I think he knew <laughs> going in what he was doing. If you want to make yourself one of these 12 guys, you're this Jewish man, and it's near Passover, and you're on a lake near Passover time, thinking back maybe to Exodus in a lake, and maybe you're thinking of the Red Sea. Remember that story in Exodus, I think it's 14, and Moses has led the Israelites out of captivity, and they're being led by this pillar of fire, and it leads them, which is the presence of God, and they, they come up to the Red Sea, and then the Egyptian army files in behind them, and the people are saying to Moses, if you're our, if you're our leader, you need a better map, because you've you were boxed in here. And God, Moses starts praying, and God says, what are you complaining about? Just keep walking. And that night, God sends a strong wind that parts the Red Sea, and the Israelites walk across as if it was dry land, and then when the Egyptians follow, the sea covers them up, kills them. That's pretty impressive, walking across the Red Sea, as if it was on dry land. The water's parting, and you're walking through, and there are walls of water on either side. That's something. Walking on water is better. It is. Walking across the Red Sea is great when it's dry ground. Immediately, being from the middle of the lake to your destination, it's, it's just better. Jesus is better. I think that's part of what's going on here. I don't know that anyone else saw Jesus walking on water except the 12. Matthew and Mark say it happens in the fourth watch. That's between 3 in the morning and 6 in the morning. Not a ton of people are up and on the water, I wouldn't think, at that point. It's dark. Nobody can see him. I think it's just for them. 
And I think what he's wanting them to see is, hey, I'm better. It's Passover and you're thinking about Moses and some of y'all are looking for another Moses. You're looking for a deliverer, for God to, someone to, for God to send someone to set you free. And I'm that, but I'm better than that. Moses split the Red Sea. I can walk on it. With, with Moses, there was this food, manna, whatever it was, on the ground every day. And you could get enough for one day, but if you got too much, it rotted overnight. With me, I can take one boy's lunch and I can multiply it and there's an abundance left over. I think that's what he's saying to them. He wants them to know if, if, in, if in John a, a miracle is a sign and a sign points to something about Jesus' identity, I think what he wants us to see here is I'm, I'm better than Moses. I'm more than Moses. I'm divine. And we'll see some more of that next week when Jesus tries to explain some of what he's doing to the crowds who come chasing after him because they want another meal. When I read through these with all of those fireworks of feeding 12,000 people and walking on water, the thing that really jumped out to me was Jesus testing Philip. I don't know if that catches you at all, but that was the thing that most struck me. Jesus intentionally testing Philip. When all this crowd comes and Jesus says to Philip, how should we, where should we buy food for them? It's a leading question. Where should we buy food for them? Philip takes the easy road, the, the road Jesus has kind of cleared, and says, well, we, we can't afford it. We don't have enough money. And what John tells us is Jesus was testing Philip. He already had in mind what he wanted to do. When we hear the word test from many of us, it's bad flashbacks to high school or college and grades and the pressure of finals and professors trying to trick us. It's, it's a negative if, if a, if a well-designed test for school is, should tell you what you know, kind of what's in your head about a subject in the Bible, and the word testing is throughout the Bible, Genesis all the way through to the end, a, a, a biblical test is designed to show us who we trust and what's in our heart. So if an academic test is what we know and what's in our head, a spiritual test is who we trust and what's in our heart, and the most iconic example of testing in the Bible is actually in Genesis. It's in Genesis 22, where God tests Abraham. You remember Abraham? He's the father of our faith. He's a hero in the faith. He waits 25 years for a son. God gives him this son, Isaac, after 25 years of waiting. And God says, it's through Isaac that you're going to receive your inheritance. Your inheritance is going to be, you're going to bless the nations. You're going to have descendants as numerous as the stars are in the sky and the sand on the seashore. And all of that's going to come through this one kid, Isaac. And chapter 22 begins with God tested Abraham. How does he test Abraham? He says, you've got to kill Isaac. You've got to sacrifice him. So early the next morning, quick obedience, Abraham gets a knife and he gets fire and he gets wood and he gets Isaac and they start this three-day trek to the top of a mountain where Abraham is going to sacrifice Isaac. And they get to the top, and Abraham lays Isaac down on a rock or some kind of makeshift altar. I would imagine he probably tied him down. Maybe he doesn't. And then he gets a knife, and he's about to slice Isaac's throat. And God says, time out. Hold on. Now I know that you fear me because you didn't withhold your only son from me. And Abraham looks up, and there's a ram in a bush, and he grabs that ram, and he sacrifices the ram in place of Isaac, and he names that place the Lord will provide. It's a great story. So many things there around what it looks like to be tested. We see God testing 
Abraham. And we see that in the midst of that test, God learns something about Abraham. And I don't know how that sits for you theologically, for God to learn something. Well, God knows everything. Absolutely, God knows everything. But part of what God knows, He knows because He sees what we do before we do it. God stands outside of time. He, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He, he's eternal. He created time, but he's not bound by it. He can step into time if he wants to, but he's not constrained by time at all. And so when we say God knows everything, part of what we're talking about is foreknowledge. In our frame of reference, we would say God can see into the future, but there is no future for God. There's just now. And so he can see it all laid out. And so he absolutely knows what Abraham is going to do. But the reason he knows what Abraham is going to do is because he sees what Abraham actually does. And so the same thing is true for you. When God tests you, he learns something about you. He can see, you can say, well, for for me on this day, well, God already knows what I'm going to decide. Well, yes, he already knows what I'm going to decide, but he knows what I'm going to decide because he can see what I'm actually Deciding, that's hard on a Sunday to get your mind around that. It's not, God doesn't cause those things, he just sees those things. And so a test is not God playing with us. He's not toying with us. He genuinely learns things, and he genuinely learns something about Abraham. Now I know, he says. Now I know that you fear me. Testing, it's not, it's not God being cruel And it's definitely not him playing games. It's an opportunity for him to see what's in us. Abraham learned something about God. He renames this place the Lord will provide. Because God had a ram in a bush for him to sacrifice in place of his son. You'll learn something as you go through a period of testing. God will show you something about himself. And what God is looking for is faith. That's what it looks like to pass. It's pass, fail. There's no A, B, C, D, or F. What he's looking for is faith. When Abraham's at the bottom of the mountain, he has a servant who's walking with him, and he turns to the servant, and he says, we, me and Isaac, are going to go up and worship, and then we, me and Isaac, are going to come back down. How's that work? You're supposed to kill Isaac at the top of the mountain. How are y'all both going to come back down? The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 11 says this, that Abraham figured... That God would raise Isaac from the dead. Doesn't say figured, but that's what he's saying. Abraham figured God would raise Isaac from the dead because he had these two two words from God. One word, sacrifice your son. Another word, it's through your son that I'm going to bless the nations. It's through this son, Isaac, that you're going to have all of these descendants. And so Abraham's going, well, how can both of those things be true? Well, I guess the only way both of those things can be true is I'll sacrifice Isaac and then God will raise him from the dead. That's what he figured. That's faith. And that's what God is looking for from us in the midst of a test. It's an opportunity to show what's in us and to show whom we're trusting in. It's an opportunity to express faith in him. So you're going to be tested. Peter says in 1 Peter, don't be shocked. Don't be surprised. This isn't strange. You're going to be tested. That's part of the deal. Sometimes those tests are orchestrated by God, like it was with Abraham. He's the one pulling the strings. He's the one setting it up. Sometimes it's just the circumstances of life. You can see that in Judges 2 if you want to at the end of that chapter. God just says, I'm just going to leave these other nations here in the promised land along with Israel to test them. 
He doesn't necessarily do anything with the other nations. He just leaves them there and kind of lets nature take its course, so to speak, as you have these enemy nations within close proximity to one another. So it very well could be that your test is just circumstances. Ultimately, it doesn't matter what the source is. It's an opportunity for God to see what's in you and to see whom you're trusting and for you to learn something about him. Why? I have a, one of my kids is in a chemistry class, and her teacher gives them, they call, them the, they call her a, a progress check. That's what her teacher calls it. So they have a test on the 20th, and so on the 18th or the 17th, they do a progress check. And the progress check contains the material that's going to be on the test. And so they go and they take it, and then what the, the professor does is the questions that are most missed on the progress check, that's what he puts on the test. Um, but, but for her, it's an opportunity, and for all the kids, it's an opportunity to see what I know. It counts, but it doesn't count as much. It doesn't count, the progress check counts, but it doesn't count as much as a, the test grade. And it's a chance before the test to see what they know and what they don't know. I think with Philip, Jesus was kind of giving him a progress check. Let's just see. We've been doing this for a while. Let's see what's in your heart. Let's see the, the lens through which you're viewing difficulties. He's seen Jesus turn water into wine. You know, Jesus has healed a boy from 20 miles away just by saying, your son is healed. He's seen Jesus pull a guy up off a mat who hasn't been able to walk in 38 years. Is any of that coloring how you're seeing this situation? It wasn't at that point. Jesus doesn't get mad at Philip. He's not angry at him. It's a progress check. Let's just see, Philip. Let's see the lenses that you're using to look at life. Could you see testing as similar? Both Jesus and Paul say the ones who stand firm to the end will be saved, which implies to me that those who don't won't. So if the ones who stand firm to the end will be saved, and Jesus very clearly says as we approach the time when he returns, things are going to get more difficult for people who follow him. Troubles and tribulations will come. And if we know that part of our responsibility is to stand firm through those things, whatever those happen to look like, well, wouldn't you rather know now if your roots aren't deep enough to, to last? Wouldn't you rather know now that your foundation's not strong enough? Wouldn't you rather know now when you have time to make adjustments instead of finding out then? If you know you've got a final, and if you don't pass the final, you don't pass the class, wouldn't a progress check be a gift to you before the final? So you could find out what you know before you actually have to know it. That's what testing is. Jesus, God's not playing with us. He's not toying with us. It's not cruel. It's an opportunity for him to see what's in us and for us to see what's in us in some ways. Are my roots deep enough? Luke 8 talks about the it's parable of the sower. and You know that parable and one of the conditions of the heart is shallow, there's rocks, and those are people who receive the gospel with joy. And, and then difficulty comes, and they wither. Luke says a time of testing comes, and those plants wither, those people wither, because they don't have roots that are deep enough to withstand the heat. Wouldn't you rather know that before you have to know that? A test is a gift from the Lord to us. And rather than seeing it maybe as a fiery ordeal, which is how we can perceive it sometimes, if we see it as an opportunity to trust God more deeply, 
like that kid jumping into her father's arms. Because all he's looking for from us is faith. That's how you pass. Without faith, it's impossible to please the Lord. What he's always looking for from us is simply trust. What does it look like for me to trust you in this situation, Jesus? And that's what I'm going to try to do. It's interesting that both Jesus and Paul say, when difficulty comes, what I'm looking for is for you to stand. That doesn't seem that hard. I'm looking for you to stand. That's it. I'm not looking for you to win. I'm not looking for you to fight. I'm, not lo- I'm just looking for you to stand. And, and Paul says, I think it's in 2 Corinthians, that it's God who makes us stand. So even the thing he asks us to do, which doesn't seem that hard in the first place, stand, God in- enables us to do. He enables us to stand in Jesus. If you're experiencing a test, I would encourage you, see it as a progress check. See it as an opportunity to see how, how deep do my roots go in Jesus? How strong is my foundation in him? If you like, if you like what you see, praise the Lord. If you think, I don't know, you have an opportunity before him to say, strengthen my foundation, deepen my roots. I want to be one who stands firm until the end. And so would you make me that kind of son or that kind of daughter? I recognize I can't do that on my own. So I'm asking you to do that in me. Let's take a couple of minutes and pray as we close, if you would. So first question, are you being tested? Answer that in your heart, yes or no. All of you aren't, but some of you are. If you're being tested, then here's your second question. And this one you need to ask the Lord. What does it look like for me to be faithful? What does it look like for me to trust you? And I don't know the answer to that. That's between you and him. And if you're willing to do whatever it was then it's going to look a whole lot like standing. Then you just say this, God, strengthen my weak knees so that I can stand firm in the face of this test. God, would you, would I be one who would stand firm until the end? God, I pray that my roots would grow deep enough in Jesus that I would withstand trouble and tribulation and persecution. God, would you shore up my foundation so that my faith is strong enough to withstand the weight of my life? God, I pray that like with Abraham, that you'd look at me and, and you'd say, now I know. Now I know that I love you more than I love anybody else. That I'm willing to say yes, even when I can't see the next step. That I'm willing to release something that's very important to me out of obedience to you. Whatever it is, God, I pray that, that I would, I'd pass the test, not because I'm great, at all, but because I'm trusting, letting, I'm surrendering, I'm yielding fully to you.
God, my prayer for the men and the women, the students in this room, is that each one of us would be of the type that would stand firm into the end without any, no, no fear in that at all. Just a recognition that you're able to make us stand. And so I pray that we would in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to close with a time of prayer. If you want ministry, we'll pray with you about anything at all that you have going on. And I would say particularly if you feel like you're being tested. Again, not trying to figure out where the test is coming from, but if you feel like you're in the midst of that, let us pray for God to strengthen you through that time. You guys can stand and we'll be dismissed after this song. Thanks.